What is the church? What should it look like? And what has it been called to do? In this series on the foundation and future of Cornerstone, we answer these questions and seek to carve out a biblical path forward for being the church in Southampton Roads. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Part four of our Foundation and Future of Cornerstone series. It's also the conclusion of the foundation part today. We uh, have been trying to lay out a path of understanding who we are. And so for the last three Sundays and now today, we are trying to answer that question biblically, practically. Uh, we're trying to understand it both now and lay a foundation that will guide us into the future as well. So this is the end of that foundation part. We will um, have our Easter services next week, and then when we come back in April, we'll be beginning the foundation, or excuse me, the future piece. Uh, before I begin, though, I wanted to share something kind of funny with you. So uh, last week, I, start, I tried to start with, with a joke, kind of. I don't do that too often, but uh, I tried it, and of course it flopped, mainly because of the person who's telling it. But uh, I had that picture of that guy, that model I saw at Kohl's who looked kind of like Jesus, and... Uh, I was later after the service, I had, a, I don't want to exaggerate this, but I think I had three ladies mention to me that I could put his picture up every week if I wanted to. <laughs> so I asked one of them, who will remain nameless, I asked one of them, this person didn't say it this way, but I asked one of them, so uh, really is he, is he that handsome? And they said, well, he is a model, isn't he? And so I'm like, okay, I guess our ladies like a little eye candy up front every now and then, Be above and beyond this. You're laughing way too hard, Teresa. <laughs> way too hard. Anyway, so no more pictures of models for any of you ladies out here. Sorry, I learned something about you last week. You're in Colossians 1. I want to reread verses 28 and 29, and we'll just basically be picking up where we left off last Sunday. So if you will look at verse 28, Paul writes this. He writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Jesus, we're coming back exactly to where we left last time, just trying to understand what it is that you have for us as your church. We want to be about your business. We want to be doing what it is you have for us to do. We want to be fulfilling the mission that you yourself came to fulfill and have left us here now in your place to carry on. And so Jesus, as we work through the text this morning, as we think through these questions, these topics, these issues that are so fundamental to who Cornerstone is, our understanding of ourselves, please give us a clear mind to understand, hearts to receive, and then a will to go out and do. We're, we're turning a corner today, Lord. We're, we're in the process of, of transitioning from from who we are to, to where we're going. And so I pray that, that this last piece of foundation today will be, will be crucial in that understanding in everyone's hearts and that we'll all be equally committed to what it is you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've um, used a word several times over the past couple of weeks that uh, I've used quite often in life but never actually taken the time to look up and see what it it actually means it's the word widget. I, I've said that in a couple of illustrations. 
And so I was uh, Googling this week, or I'm sorry, I wasn't Googling, I went to the all-knowing Wikipedia and decided to see what they would define a widget as. And I was quite shocked by how many things popped up under the the heading widget. So for example, a widget is a device that's placed in cans and bottles of beer to aid in the generation of froth. It looks like a little little ball or something in the, the can. Widget was the name of a character in Marvel Comics back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, there was a TV series in the 90s called Widget, the World Watcher. Does anyone remember that show? I didn't either. Uh, there was, uh, uh, it was, excuse me, it was the nickname of the Bombardier Dash 8, which was an airplane. It was called the Widget by somebody. Uh, speaking of planes, it's the name of the logo of Delta Airlines. You know that triangle that's on Delta ads? Internally, they call that the widget. So that's their logo. If your kids like Bionicle, it's the currency used in the Bionicle universe. And it is also the term, this is very important and will come, uh, come in handy, it is also the term you would use to refer to a baby gremlin, as in, oh, what an adorable widget. You would never say, oh, what an adorable baby. Apparently, the word is used in many more ways than I had ever envisioned it. I always just understood it in its most basic generic sense as just a a generic term that you would use to refer to anything made or sold in business. And so that's the way I've used it in the last couple of sermons. I've talked about a company that was making widgets and that wanted to be the number one widget maker in the world. I'm just using it generically to refer to that thing that's out there. Well, it's this issue of coming back to purpose is why that was on my mind. I I keep using this illustration of companies because I find them to be very helpful for us as we think through what our purpose is as a church and we try to think to the future and how that directs us. If, in fact, we were a company and we, we wanted to know what our future was, we would need to set a very, very clear purpose. And so if we're widget makers, we'll say we want to be the number one widget maker in the world. But, but what did I tell you about that statement just a, a couple of weeks ago? I told you that that's not enough. It's a good statement in that it's clear. You know what you want to be. You want to be the number one widget maker, but it's not enough. Your purpose statement is not the end of your journey in trying to figure out who you are as a company. In fact, it's just the beginning. Because you need to do a couple of more, a couple of other things really to make any sense out of that purpose. One, you need to figure out what that means for you. What will it mean to be the number one widget maker in the world? And number two, you're going to have to answer or figure out what you'll need to focus on in order to achieve that end. I'll stop talking in terms of widgets, and I'll give you a real-life example. How many of you are familiar with the name Bethlehem Steel? That's a major steel company. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of it, okay? If you're from Pennsylvania, you've probably heard of Bethlehem Steel. It was, for just about 100 years, the number one steel country in America, maybe even the world. They were a behemoth of a corporation, huge factories and complexes, massive blast furnaces producing millions and millions of tons of steel every year. They were huge in the shipbuilding industry and all kinds of other industries. There's a number of very, very famous buildings in America that all were filled with Bethlehem steel. They were the number one company, steel company in America from 1880 to 1970, something like that. I don't know what the dates were. How many of you have ever heard of a company called Nucor? Okay, the only ones who've heard of that are ones who've read a book that I made them read or a few business people. Um, Nucor was not a behemoth of anything. Nucor was a small company that got its beginning sometime, I think, in the 40s or 50s around nuclear things. Their original name was Nuclear Corporation, but they eventually shortened it to just Nucor. However, in time, they kind of got off track and started buying all kinds of other businesses and things that didn't have anything to do with 
anything remotely nuclear. In fact, nuclear stuff kind of fell off the radar completely, and they were a conglomeration of all kinds of businesses and services, and you name it, they had their fingers in the pot. Well, in 1966, they got a new CEO who realized that they could not continue as a company in this particular model. And so he said, we need to get rid of everything except one thing, do one thing really well, and then, then we can thrive as a company. So they looked at all of their businesses, and they had quite a few at the time. And the business they chose to focus on was, as you can probably guess now, steel. They had a very small steel-making division. They made some little, it wasn't really steel they made, it was a steel product that went along with, with uh, steel buildings. And they were pretty good at that. So he said, we're going to focus on steel. And so they sold everything everything except the steel business. And at the same time, they set a purpose for themselves. And I can't give you the actual purpose statement that they had in 1966, if they even had a purpose statement that they would have identified. But I can tell you what their purpose was. Their purpose was to become the number one steel maker in America. Their purpose was to defeat Bethlehem Steel. That's a great purpose, right? Clear. You know what you want to accomplish. You know what you want to do. But our two questions come into play. What does that mean? And what do you need to focus on to get there? And so when they ask themselves the question, okay, what does this mean to become the number one steelmaker in America? The answer actually was pretty clear. It meant that they had to produce steel at a lower cost than Bethlehem, which sounds kind of simple up front until you remember that Bethlehem's the already established con uh, company with huge factories and blast furnaces producing millions of tons of low-cost steel every year. How is this upstart company ever going to undercut Bethlehem's cost? But that's what it meant. If they were going to become number one, they had to find a way to undercut their prices to be the lowest cost provider of steel in America. Well, what are you going to focus on to get there? How are you going to do it? Well, there were certain things they knew they couldn't do. They couldn't simply, you know, waltz into Bethlehem's backyard and build a massive factory in the hills of Pennsylvania and try to steal all their workers. That wasn't really going to fly. One, they didn't really know the steel business super well at that point. But two, they didn't have the money to go about it that way. However, Nucor did know two things really, really, really well. One, they knew people. They knew how to hire find, train, and retain some of the best workers any company has ever had in the history of probably American industry. Two, they knew technology. Remember their beginning, they were a nuclear company. They knew how to invent things and find things and come up with innovative ways to do stuff that nobody had ever thought of before. And so since those were their strengths, guess what they focused on? Those two things. And so they made some decisions which back in 1966 were earth-shattering in the world of, of steel, which now in our day we look at and say we're pure genius. They decided to build their first mini-mill in Darlington, South Carolina. Now, when I say that sentence to you, it doesn't sound particularly interesting, but two things really are amazingly interesting in that. One, think of the location, Darlington, South Carolina. What, what do South Carolinians know about making steel? You know, Pennsylvania is steel country. South Carolina is still country. Thank you. I was hoping people get that. I don't get to work moonshine jokes in too often, but there you go. What, what do South Carolinians know about making steel? They know absolutely nothing. So why in the world would you put a steel factory in farm country? Well, it's because 
Nucor knew something about people. They knew that in order to undercut the cost of steel that Bethlehem was making, they had to have the hardest working, most dedicated, innovative uh, workforce that any company would ever have. Where do you find those kinds of people in mass quantities enough to run a factory? You find it in farm country. Farmers are hardworking, faithful, innovative people, work from sunup to sundown, honest day's work for an honest day's pay. They'll, they'll do a great job, and you find them in mass quantities out in the middle of, of nowhere. And so they went and they put a, a factory there in Darlington, South Carolina, and they hired an entire workforce of farmers because they knew it would be easier to take farmers who were faithful and hardworking and teach them steel than to go find steel workers and try to teach them to be hardworking. It was way easier, and so they go to Darlington. Second thing in that sentence that should stand out to you is the phrase mini-mill, a, a mini-mill, a micro-mill. Again, remember that at the time, Bethlehem had these massive centralized factories producing millions of tons of steel and blast furnaces. They were doing steel the old way. Nucor couldn't afford that, nor did they really want to. They decided that they would be better off to use technology to create different ways of forging steel and making steel than what Bethlehem ever considered. So they started using electric arc technology, which I don't understand fully, but they were using it in these little mini mills that were located all across the country. It's just, instead of having to ship steel from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, all the way to California, guess what? They put them all over. And next thing you know, they could make low-cost steel close to where it was needed, sell it locally, basically, and undercut their profit. And over the next 40 years, Nucor proceeded to become the number one steelmaker in, in the world. Bethlehem Steel officially went bankrupt in 2001. What was left of the company was broken up, sold off, all its pieces, factories, equipment, all distributed wherever, who knows who bought it. But Nucor today is still number one steelmaker in the world. How did they get there? Because they came up with a great purpose statement? No. The purpose statement was helpful. It guided them into the future. It gave them something to aim at. But in order for them to really get to where they were going, they had to ask some very important questions. They had to ask what that purpose meant and where it, what they had to focus on in order to get there. Well, obviously, I bring all this up because we find ourselves in the exact same position this morning. Last Sunday, I took the entire time to try to lay out for you a biblical understanding of what our purpose is as a church here at Cornerstone. And the statement I gave you was this. We took it right from Colossians 1.28.9, that our purpose is to work with all of the energy that God gives us to proclaim Christ to everyone so that we can present everyone to God perfect in Christ Jesus. That, that was where we ended last week. And all we're doing in that statement is we're taking the various pieces of Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and we're just kind of rearranging them differently for the purposes of our statement. Our statement begins by recognizing that our efforts are not our own, right? That the energy that we use to work and to do and to, to serve, it's not our own energy. In other words, we don't get to pat ourselves on the back at the end of the day and say, what a great job we did. The, the energy we have that we use to serve God, it's given to us by God. It's from him. Paul recognizes us there in verse 29. And so because God is working in us and doing something in us, we want to proclaim Christ to everyone. We want to warn and teach them and show them Jesus and the gospel because this is what changes people. Not our wisdom, not our experience, not our stories. They need 
Christ. And so we're here to proclaim him crucified, risen, and reigning. And we're going to do that to everybody, everyone. Remember, he's very, very specific. It's not just a generic term. It's everyone. Each person, each individual needs to have this presented to them, truth presented to them. Our target then is as wide as the world we live in. So it's our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, whoever it is that we interact with, we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be proclaiming Christ to them. And why? What's the end goal? Is to present everyone to God perfect, mature in Jesus. And this applies equally to believers and unbelievers alike. It's not just about sharing the gospel with unbelievers or just about trying to help believers grow it. It's for everybody. We all need to be perfect, mature in Christ. And so as I look at this this statement here, I stand here before you this morning and say to you as one of your pastors that that this excites us. This is the kind of statement that doesn't simply describe what we think or believe about the church. That was the problem with the first one. Remember when I showed that to you? This is the kind of statement that drives us into the future, can can lead us there if we're willing to allow it and embrace it. Our mission as a church is nothing more, nothing less than to make people perfect and mature in Christ. That's what we need to be about here at Cornerstone. It's a good statement. It's not enough. Because just like with Nucor, we need to stop and ask now those two questions. What does this mean? And what do we need to focus on to get there in order to really get the full benefit of this particular statement? So we'll start with the first question. What does this mean for us, this purpose statement? Well, you may not have realized it, but last week I partially answered that question for us in the middle of the sermon. I kind of went by it quickly and I didn't draw attention to it necessarily, but it was the answer to what it means to make people mature in Jesus. Basically, it means to make them like him. Not like him as dislike him, but like him, like it's similar to him. Look like him, think like him, talk like him, live like him. It means to be like him. And I drew that from my study of this word mature that Paul uses in verse 28. This is the focus. This is what he wants to do. He wants to make everyone this thing, mature in Jesus. And this word here that, that Paul's using for the word mature, it, it comes from the Greek word telos, which just simply means to be mature, to be perfect, to be complete. It has the idea of bringing something to its desired end. And so I was sitting in my uh, office this morning, and it's dark outside, it's cold, I know it's going to rain today, and I don't know why, but it made me want cornbread. <laughs> I was just thinking about cornbread. <laughs> I like making, I'm the cornbread maker in our house. Jamie makes every other kind of bread, I make the cornbread. Um, but it's, you know, when you make cornbread, it's kind of like making cake. How do you tell when a cake is done or when cornbread's done? You take a butter knife and you stick in the middle. And if you pull it out and there's still batter on it, what does that mean? It's not done. If you put your uh, knife in the middle, and pull it out, and it's perfectly clean, what does that mean? It's done. It's telos. It's complete. It's reached maturity as far as cornbread goes. This is as mature as cornbread's ever going to get. It's perfect. It, it has reached its desired end. This is what you wanted it to be. And this is the word that Paul is using here for us to describe his ministry purpose. He wants to proclaim Christ to everyone because he's hoping that they will reach a desired end. And that desired end is Jesus. He wants them to be like Jesus, to be perfect, complete, mature, telos in in Jesus. And this concept of being mature or perfect, of being telos in Jesus, it's used quite a bit in the New Testament. And I mentioned that to you very briefly last week. But the passage that I think 
emphasizes it or shows what it means better than all others is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. There, Paul tells us that Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ would be built up. And we pause and we say, when will that be done? When will that work be complete? Well, according to verse 13, this task will continue until we have all grown up into mature manhood until we're all telos same word till we're all complete perfect until we have reached our desired end and then he defines for us what that maturity looks like it means that we grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ in other words being mature means being like jesus in every way that's our telos that's our desired end to be like Christ. And so when I asked the first question, what does this mean? Here's the answer. It, it simply means to be like Jesus. That's the answer I gave you last week. And so when we think about that in relation to Cornerstone, we say, okay, our purpose then as a church is to work with all the energy God gives us to present everyone to him perfect, mature in Christ. That means that we have a, a mission, a, a purpose, a reason for existing that is looking for Christ's likeness in everyone who walks through this door and everyone who walks by it. Everybody around us, our goal is to see them all look like Jesus in every single way. We want them to think like Jesus thinks, to believe like Jesus believes, to live like Jesus lived. Everything, every aspect of every single person's life, we want to be like Christ. So when you ask me what our purpose means, this is it. It means that we will make people like Jesus. And that immediately then leads to the second question. All right, what do you have to focus on in order to get there? Because I'm hoping at this point you feel a little overwhelmed by that. Because it's no small thing to say that our goal is to make every single aspect of every single person's life exactly like Jesus. Like, they're, like what are you smoking in your office? <laughs> Eating a little uh, messed up cornbread or something like that. Yeah, well... Maybe, but this is the goal. This is what Paul lays out for us here. And so we need to figure out what we have to focus on in order to get there. Well, before I do that, let me just pause and give a quick and, and probably an obvious statement just to make sure that you don't misunderstand what I'm about to do. We recognize, humanly speaking, that we can't do anything to make people like Jesus, right? Everybody understand that and good with that? I mean, there is nothing I can do to force you, make you, manipulate you, any word you want to choose here, into being like Christ. I just, I can't. I, I can give you guilt trips, and I can try to give you motivations, and, but I can't cause this work to happen. Who is the only person who can cause this work to happen? The Spirit. God can do it through His Spirit in our hearts. And the fact that it has to be the Spirit who does it reminds me that everything I'm about to say from this point forward has to be understood in that light, that the Spirit does that work. If you need an illustration, just, just think of salvation. Can you make anyone accept Jesus? No. Can you cause anyone to turn their hearts and faith and repentance to the Lord before the cross? No. What, what do you do? What's your responsibility in this task? Your responsibility is to proclaim truth. You give them the message. You tell them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their sins. And then you hope and pray that the Spirit comes along and takes that work and does the part that you cannot do. However, you still have a part, do you not? 
And so as we go through these things about what it means, what you have to focus on to make people like Jesus, remember that this isn't our work. This is something only the Spirit can do. However, we will play a part. I hope that makes sense because without that, you won't understand the the answers I'm going to give you here in this particular question. So what do we need to do? What do we need to focus on in order to accomplish our purpose, humanly speaking? I'm going to give you five things, five things we have to focus on as a church to make this purpose happen. Number one, we're going to focus on truth. We're going to focus on truth. And this is the first and foundational element of what we, what we now call our five core values. You may have heard us refer to that. You may have seen that on the website. I think those are on there. Um, you're going to start seeing it on your bulletins that we, we just recently reprinted. We're just getting rid of the old ones. They're not there yet for all of you who just looked down. That was funny. Um, <laughs> you're going to start seeing these more and more. We call these our five core values, and we were trying to figure out what it meant to say that you want to make people perfect in Jesus. And believe me, this was, this was uh, again, an overwhelming task because you're, you're looking at something that, humanly speaking, is completely impossible. So what is it that I you need to focus on in order to, to make people do this? Well, we were going back and forth trying to understand it. And in the end, what we did was we picked just five general categories that, that help us wrap our minds around what it means to be like Jesus, not that you can sum him up in five easy points, but we had to do something to help us with that purpose. And, and truth is always the first one that you have to start with. Truth is the foundation of everything else. We need to help people understand the truth of Jesus if they're ever going to be like him. There's no change apart from that. We talk sometimes about the word of God, right? You'll, you'll hear that phrase used. It's one of those cliche phrases of the church that people have said so many times that they've forgotten what it always refers to. But when I say to you that we need to focus ourselves on the word of God, I hope two things come to mind. Number one, the scriptures should come to mind. Because in these 66 books that we call the Bible, the scriptures, we find God's revealed truth to us. Everything that he wanted us to know is in these, are in these pages. But when you think of the word of God, I hope you also secondly think of Jesus himself. Because remember what John says in John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to man. He came to this earth so that we could know the Father. That's why Jesus later will say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't think right thoughts about God apart from Jesus. You can't understand the Father correctly apart from the Son. It's just, it's not possible. It's not how God has built this thing. And so if we are going to be like Jesus, guess what we have to do? We have to focus our lives on truth. We have to be striving to grow in it more and more to be changing our thinking to match our Lord's thinking, to understand this world the way he understands this world, to understand everything the way he does. And so for us, what that means here is hopefully that we won't change anything. I sincerely hope and pray that that has been a constant of Cornerstone for many years, that we have focused on truth that we have focused on Jesus Christ in the scriptures. We're not here to, to entertain you. We're not here to make you feel good about yourself. We're here to tell you truth so that the spirit can use that truth to change who we are from the inside out. But if we're going to be like Jesus and if we're going to push other people to be like him as well, then 
we're going to have to focus on truth. Number two, we're going to have to focus on love. Because we believe that truth intersects life, change will always be the outcome. If you really believe that the scriptures are God's word, that they are his truth to us, then you have to believe that that the reason he's giving us his truth is to change us, to, to turn us away from how we naturally are, which is sinful, and to turn our hearts and minds to him. The Spirit uses the truth of Christ in the scriptures to change people. Je- Jesus was asked about this once. Do you remember it? A, a Pharisee came to him one day and said, Lord or Master, whatever he called him, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? Have you ever thought about that question? Here he is looking at the the full spectrum of truth in the law, all these commands. And he says, okay, which of these is the greatest, the most important, the one that supersedes them all, which has to do with life because it's a command. Which of them is the most important? And what is Jesus' answer? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He turns to love. Think about those last words of Jesus there in John chapter 13 as he's getting ready to leave the upper room and go to the garden. What's that last command he gives his disciples? That you love one another just as I have loved you. He he gives them love, but not just generic. He gives them his own personal example of love is what they are supposed to emulate, what will be the true mark of Christian discipleship for the rest of time. Love others like I have loved you. And so if we're going to be like Jesus as a church, this is what we have to focus on to love one another and those outside of these walls like Jesus has loved us, to love God the Father like Jesus did. Jesus wasn't just a a passive participant in the things of of this life when it came to the Father. He was passionate about his love of God. You say, what he was God, I know. But it doesn't change the fact that when we say we want to have a deep spiritual life, what, what are we gauging that by? What does that mean? Well, I hope what you mean by that is you want to love the Father like the Son did. That you want, to, you want to have as close and as intimate of a relationship with God as Jesus did on this earth. This is what we're striving towards. This is what we want both for ourselves and others. That love will be at the forefront of what happens in this room that will push each other to love God and each other just like Jesus did. Number three, we're going to focus on community. Remember here, that Jesus has always lived in community, always. When you think about the Trinity, think about God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, you realize that that's, that's a community. It's the community of God. He's never been alone, except for the cross when the Father abandoned him, which puts that in a whole new light as well. Jesus has always lived in community. Even when he came to this earth as a man, he chose to live in community. He came as as part of a family, not apart from a family. Why? Why didn't he just show up? Just boom, here I am, I'm Jesus, I'm God here to save you. Why come as a baby? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but he, he, he identifies with us in that and being part of a family. When he was ministering, he surrounded himself with others and he lived his life with them. And then when he died, he continued to focus on community by building his church. What you see here, this people that Christ has built together, it's, it's his community now. We, we were meant to live our lives together. 
We were meant to be like Jesus and, and to be with others, not to keep to ourselves. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There's not. That makes no sense biblically or theologically. If we are going to be like Jesus, you have to be with others. You have to do this thing we call the uh, uh, Christianity, the church with other people. And the type of community we're talking about here, please note this, is not built around people you like. The type of community we're talking about here is not built around common interests or shared backgrounds or similar economic factors or family dynamics or any other thing you want to choose. The type of community we're talking about here, biblical community, is built around the gospel. It's built around the spirit and what Jesus has done in putting us together with all of our flaws, with all of our warts, with all of our shortcomings, with all of our sinfulness. Here we are together, one room, boom, this is the church. All of it's messed up with all of it's messed up people. We are here to be a community that is not built around the, the cliques of, that make up normal friendship. We're here to be a community built around Jesus and our shared life together in the gospel. Number four, if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to have to focus on service. On service. One of the most amazing comments Jesus ever made about himself, ever. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross is the ultimate act of service for Jesus. So here you have the sovereign God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence by his own word, coming to earth as a man, but not as a king. Right? Philippians 2. How does he come? He comes in the form of a servant, as a bond slave. And so if our goal is to be like Jesus in every way, then being a servant isn't optional for us. The scriptures command us to serve one another. Who did Jesus say would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember? The one who would be the servant of all. And so what this tells me here is that there's no room in the church for believers who only take and never give. Who only want to be served but never serve. If, if that's your understanding of what this place is that we call Cornerstone, please leave. And I know that sounds harsh. I hope you would change. But if you refuse, go. We, we don't need takers we need givers. We don't need people just fill up seats. We can fill up seats other ways. We want people who want to serve our Lord and serve the others around them. If you are here and you don't serve, that is not Christianity. That is selfishness masquerading itself as Christianity. Our Lord came to serve. And if we are going to be like our Lord, if we're going to be like Jesus in every way, then guess what we have to do? We have to serve to every person with whom we have contact and just for the record, we're not just talking here about service in relation to what happens on Sundays, you know, nursery and all that stuff that we talk about quite often. It's not just about Sundays. We're talking about service that is far above and beyond that. To really live your life sacrificially for other people, to lay down your life to help others, that's what we're being called to do because that's how Jesus lived and we want to be like him. And then number five, we're going to be like him. We have to focus on mission. Before returning to heaven, Jesus gave his disciples what we call the Great Commission. Okay, Matthew chapter 28, where he said, Go, uh, my name, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. You're familiar with the passage. 
We're, we're supposed to finish the work that Jesus came to do. He came here to begin the process of redeeming a people for himself by his own blood. So we've got Easter coming up next week. I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Are you ready? And, and the truth of Easter is that the, the cross was not the end, right? That Jesus lying in the tomb on the third day rose from the dead. And after spending time with the, his followers, he ascended up into heaven. So where is the body of Christ now? It's on earth. Isn't it interesting that despite the truths of the resurrection, which tell us that Jesus bodily rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, he so associates himself with his people that he calls us his body? We're here on earth. He's our head. He's in heaven. But we're, that means or tells me that what we're supposed to do is to finish the mission that Jesus started to live out our lives in such a way that we can aid in this process of redeeming a people, not because we did anything, because we shared the truth with them. Making disciples, what he says there in the Great Commission, it's just another way of talking about making people mature in Christ. That's what discipleship is. It's making them like him. It's through the gospel that people living in rebellion against God are changed from enemies of God into sons of God. It's through the gospel that sons of God are brought more and more in line with their real natures being sons of God, being like Jesus. This is why we have to be constantly coming back to the gospel and all of our thoughts about how we live our lives. This is why every now and then I say that little saying to you, you know it if you've been here any length of time, that you know, you're know you not really a stay-at-home mom, you're really a minister of Jesus Christ cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. Or you're not really in the Navy, you're really a minister of Jesus Christ cleverly disguised as someone in the Navy. You're not really retired, you're really a minister of Jesus Christ cleverly disguised as someone who's retired. That, that idea, you, you're familiar with that. What are we doing with that statement? We are trying to draw a distinction between what you do and who you really are in Jesus. You are not what you do. You are so much more than that. You have been saved so that you could be on mission for Jesus, that you could finish the task that he himself came here and started. You're a minister. What you do for a living is kind of unimportant. You can do that mission in any setting with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, wherever you're at, if you're going to be like Jesus, you need to live on mission like he did. So when we stop and ask these two questions about our purpose, this is what we find, that to make people perfect or mature in Jesus means that we have to make them like him. We want them to be Christ-like in every way. And when we think about how to get there, how to focus ourselves on that, we, we see these five core values to just give us a, a way of understanding how Jesus lived. Because he is the truth, we want to grow in truth. Because he loved God and commanded us to, we want to do that passionately. Because he lived in community, we want to build ourselves in community. Because he served, we want to serve. And because he lived his life on mission, we want to live our life on mission. This is who we are. This, this is who we are trying to be. This, folks, is our foundation, the foundation of Cornerstone. And our future must be shaped by these things and guided by these things so that in the end, what can we do? We can work with all the energy that God gives us to proclaim Christ to everyone so that we can present everyone to God perfect, mature, complete in Jesus. This is, this is Cornerstone. Let's pray. Jesus, when we stop and think about this mission, 
this purpose that you have given to the church to make people like you, to aid in that process of redeeming a people to yourself, we are overwhelmed. We, we can't do it. We can never reach everyone. We can never make people like Christ on our own. How, how do we move forward in this? Well, we move forward in humility. We move forward recognizing that this is not our work, this is your work, that this is what the Spirit does, and yet in your sovereign plan you have chosen to work through us. And so we are here with, a, with the goal, with the purpose of making people like Christ, and all we can do is be faithful. We can focus ourselves well and make sure that every little thing that we do is filtered through this grid, but in the end we come back to you and we say, Lord, please do what we cannot Please take the gospel. Please take the truth of the scriptures and apply them in ways we cannot. Please help people to understand what it means to love you. Please help them understand what it means to love others the way that you love them in ways we cannot. Help us to live our lives together in community. It's so, it's so easy for us just to gravitate to the people we like and not, and not to those that we don't. And, and yet, you loved us when we were unlovely. What gives us the right to do otherwise? Help us to be like you in community in ways that we cannot. Help us to serve, to give ourselves, to sacrifice like you sacrificed in ways that we cannot. And then, Lord, help us to live our lives on mission because ultimately, ultimately, that's why you came, to redeem a people. And you have left us here as your body to aid in that process, to continue that work now in your absence until you come again. And so, Lord, we want, to, we want to be active and involved in telling the gospel to others and to ourselves because we too need to look more like you. And so this purpose is so much bigger than any one little thing. It, it has nothing, it's nothing more, it's nothing less than trying to be like you and trying to spread Christ's likeness throughout this world. Lord, will you take these truths, these foundation stones of who Cornerstone is, and allow every single person listening in this room this morning to embrace those and make them their own. We want to be on the same page as we launch out into the future, as we try to spread the gospel and teach the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves and others more and more. We want to reach this place that you have placed us in. We want to reach Hampton Roads. We want to be useful to you. We don't want to lie on our deathbed with any regrets. We want to always be looking for ways to serve you better and to be more like you. So please, Father, do this work in us. We can't do it in ourselves. We desperately need you. Thank you, Jesus, for the promises we have that you will finish this work. And we thank you, Lord, that it's not up to us. If it was, we would be very discouraged. But we have hope in the gospel. We have hope in you. And we give ourselves to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.